0: Hey guys, it's Robert Gardner with the Robert Gardner Wellness Podcast. Really happy to see you guys again. I'm here with Daryl Markgraf. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Perfect. Nice. Daryl is extremely knowledgeable about hogs, and I uh, spontaneously started drooling the other day having a phone call with him. Daryl, I'm just going to give you the stage and let you start to chat about what you're interested in. You know Jeremy from the previous podcast, a different kind of perspective on hogs. So let's go ahead and uh, chat about that.
1: Yes. Jeremy's a great guy. He gave you a lot of good information. Uh, he's been involved for a long time. Got a good business up there. In my, for me, let me give you a little bit of background. I'm a 25-year business owner. Hunted extensively before. Since about I was 12 years old, and it's been on and off. I'll be 67 in January, so 55 years or something like that. I've been hunting at night for about 15 years, a little over, probably. I started out using colored lights, moved to the I2 night vision, which is kind of like the military stuff you see with the green and all. Then I went to digital, and then ultimately thermal, which is where everybody goes. I had bought the first commercially available digital night vision, the first. Commercially available thermal, now, the commercially available thermal first ones out there. The top end was like thirteen grand. People always wonder yeah. when are they going to get cheaper. Well, they have. <laughs> They've gotten a lot cheaper. You can buy a nice little scope now for twenty five hundred dollars. You know, yeah. so it changed a lot over the years. I use night vision for navigation some nights. Some nights not. I prefer no lights at all. The best I can do with no light is what i want to do i've owned products from probably almost all the manufacturers out there at any one time i keep six to eight thermals that seems to be as much as i want to deal with i've done a lot of guiding for different organizations church stuff veterans group outfitters uh, you kind of name it whatever i was I have a patent holder in the industry and I was one of five or seven people that fought the war for anything in Austin to keep from putting poison all over the pastures of Texas. So thoroughly involved with that tons of research. So the next thing is, I think we, we talk about pigs as a problem. You'd be a fool to say that they're not a problem in Texas. They are. And uh, they are for mostly the agriculture, the uh, ranchers, A little less, but agriculture is really getting killed by it. Are they everywhere? Well, they say they're in every county or nearly every county, but you can go in some counties. So this idea that we're overran, I get people to come down to hunt and they expect to walk over a little ridge and it'll be pigs as far as they can see. It's like Buffalo in 1840. It's typically not that way. So they watch YouTube and they think that's what they ought to see. Now, you might see that with Jeremy, but not everyone. Part of the thing that's kind of happened out there is when Sid Miller was agriculture commissioner, he wanted to introduce poison, this warfarin, it's called Kaput, from a company called Symmetric. Well, the big ag, the big grain Texas Farm Bureau, they're pushed by their members. They, they want a solution. And so none of them bothered to really research this. When we would go to meetings, their side would always just say, we got pigs, we want them gone. But are you guys looking at what this can do? Are you looking at you know any non-targeted species issues? Are you looking at, does it even really work? And we never could get that response from them. They never wanted to sit down and talk about it. They, and, and some of them, quite frankly, in these meetings, they got upset because they were going to be dealers. So follow the money. When Symmetrics had a lab that they, it was a husband wife team, one was president of one, one was president of the other, and vice versa, you know, each one they flipped. Well, of course, Genesis is going to put up a nice little study because they want to sell the product from Symetrics. They did not a study in 2015 in Texas, they saw 354 hogs. They claimed to the to the EPA a 97 percent efficacy. So we looked at their study, and they found 28 dead hogs. They also said in their study that 13 of them were were hogs that had been killed by hunters. So they killed they killed. They claim to have killed 15 out of 354. That's not 97%. That's more like 5%. I asked Richard Pochet, the president owner at the time of Psymetrics, one-on-one in a meeting in Waco, in was in front of a large group. I've got it recorded. I asked him, so what happened to the rest of the Hawks? And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, what happened to them? Where'd they go? I mean, y'all said you walked hand to hand across these pastures, and these are the hogs you found. He said, well, they died. Well, if they died, where are they? I don't think they died at all. I think pigs are nomadic. They don't like new stuff. They don't like new smells, new tastes. They will avoid them. They eventually get used to some. But I think in this case, they also learn about what hurts them. I think in this case, they left. That's all. They didn't I mean, where You couldn't find any. You didn't see vultures anywhere. So those kinds of things, you, you're you wanting, you got Texas Farm Bureau, the big ag people, you got big grain, all buying off on this product. You got all these landowners, they want a solution, but nobody's listening to what this thing doesn't work. Let me give you one step further. i got a little piece of paper here, a cheat sheet. They brought in 93 feeders, okay? These feeders that they used cost between $2, $20 and $220 and $400. I'm going to say they used the cheap one, although they tell you to buy the more expensive one because the other is lighter. So $220 for 93 feeders is $20,460. They bought. they used seventeen hundred and seven pounds of the kaput bait, okay that's a retail price of six seventy two a pound It's eleven thousand four hundred and seventy one dollars and four cents. It's almost thirty two thousand dollars now that doesn't count the corn they they load the feeders with corn to get the hogs used to coming. Are there labor or their expenses to be there, but that's thirty two thousand dollars to kill but it's 15 pigs. Now, your landowner doesn't know that. He's going to buy these products expecting them to work. So eventually we were able to get a rider into the legislation that stopped it for till the next legislative session. I think it got expired this time. Nobody fought it. It could be back out there. So I, I hate the idea of poisons. I think we could find something. Sodium nitrate. Texas and Wildlife's been working on that for over a decade, having a trouble with a feeder. It spills. They set up about three years ago up here in North Texas to do a trial, field trial. Killed about 200 birds in the first couple of days and had to stop. They're back working at it. But to me, it is a it will kill them within about 90 minutes. Warfarin. That we were talking about a while ago, the kaput Australia banned it because they would hear up to 30 days they would hear the pigs out in the woods just wailing in pain. So they just totally banned it. You try to get this information to people, you know. You try to get let why don't y'all go read a little bit? You want to listen to pigs wailing all night, you know. But but think of that expense. That's that's a lot of money to try to kill a few pigs. There's gotta be better ways.
0: What do you think is the solution. When I talk to Jeremy, this is a new topic to me, so it's not something I feel I can't throw my hat in the ring. I'm I'm learning from from you guys. He thought there was a combination of trapping and hunting that had to be used to be able to keep the hogs at bay to make it manageable. What do you think needs to be done? What are What are your well, solutions? Because you know it from the inside,
1: right? I don't disagree with with what. What Jeremy says about that. I think the most effective way in many of the land areas in Texas, we've seen it over and over. A good friend Andy Anderson has a company, executive outdoor adventures up in Bowie. He runs helicopters, he does all kinds of night hunts, this and that, and the other. There's no doubt that using the helicopters, he does a great job. They kill hundreds and hundreds of pigs a day. It is not always effective. If you get like Along some of these rivers where it's thick or anything that's got really heavy forested or, or, or thick growth, the pigs learn not to come out of it. So the helicopter's not effective there. But by and large, you can kill more with that. Trapping is second. And I think Jeremy talked about that. You've got to have a professional trapper. You know, Joe with his trap is not going to get the job done. they got to know what they're doing. And they can kill a bunch of them, uh, or not kill them, trap them, and ultimately they, they sell them. That's another piece of the problem here, is they get almost nothing for these hogs. They're spending their gas, and they're buying the traps and doing all this. And the trappers have often put their traps up, quit trapping. They're just not getting paid enough you know, by the buyers to, to do anything. So that's effective. Third is hunting with thermals at night. My feeling is most often it scatters them more than it, you know, any time. I mean, out of all the people I've taken out, there more often be somebody that's standing there, and I can get them 40 yards from a hog, and these dogs standing still, and they still miss. They're not going to hit them running. There are a few people out there, but by and large, most hunters are not capable. Uh, so the, the hog spread out, and he did have a large pasture up there on the Red River. And we got on that pasture within five months, only hunting at night with thermals. There was not a hog on it. would not come back out there. They learned not to go there, but they weren't all dead. Hundreds of them were, but they weren't all dead. They just left and wouldn't come back to that area. There's the problem, though. You just moved them somewhere else. You didn't get rid of them. So I think those three together and maybe more people allowing more people access that actually know what they're doing instead of just some uncle or, you know, whatever. I think you can do that. I think sodium nitride has a possibility of helping lower it. Now, when you introduce poison, you affect other things. When they introduced kaput, when he uttered the word, said kaput, we had containers of feral hog meat that shipped to Europe. They went, that meat went bad sitting on the docks because the minute they heard poison, they didn't know. They can't, they don't know if it's gone, if it's, you know, what's going to happen. So they they wouldn't use it. And I'm sure there must be back to it. But so you introduce that to kill them. Well, then you, you probably kill quite a few, but are you ever going to kill what you need to kill? One of the things, here's where I'm I'm a bit different. I mean, a friend of mine, he's down in Austin. He's got a restaurant, Dow Dewey, D-A-I-D-U-E. Jesse Griffiths is very knowledgeable on these things. And he and I agree on this, is that we need to do more in this state about making the wild hog meat available for human consumption. If we can move to that, It can be a pretty large industry. There's demand. I I put my foot in it a little bit. That demand is huge. But we're not producing it. And we only have maybe about five processors, USDA processors in the state, that that will process wild hogs. So if we were able to start working on that, Thousands and thousands of hogs, people say, Well, it's not cost effective. I kind of get it under our current system where you got a, a guy trapping them, he's got to sell them to this guy, and this guy transport, got to pay the guy to transport, and goes to the processor, processor, got to process. You got too many steps in there, yeah. but you can, you can streamline that and make it cost effective. So I think that would be another place that would offer job opportunities, people doing the processing of the hogs, it'd be business that that money could be made off of them. And dang it, the meat is good. You know, I mean, and that's where you kind of run into a little bit of ignorance with it too. A lot of people just say, oh, I kill the nasty things and leave them in the pasture. Well, you just haven't educated yourself. You don't understand how good they can be. You know, I sent you a few pictures of what it can be. And we had, we did some I've got a good friend that the thing on Food Network Chopped. He was a chop champion, and uh, we brought some foodies in here, and these people were blown away, you know. So that's I think that's part of it. I mean, we we're not going to do a whole lot more hunting just the way we are right now. We need more property to open up to allow the helicopters. We need some working between landowners that want them gone, but we need to be able to talk. You know, and that's what's been difficult in these meetings. So it's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> the My interest in cooking with them was from the first time I shot one. Yeah. One of the things you'll see out there on the pages is every time you want to talk about it, they say, well, throw it on the smoke, throw it on the smoke, throw it on the smoke. Well, after a while, that gets old. You know, it's like, I want to do something else. And that's where I kind of started experimenting, trying to do more stuff. I'm still learning. I've been doing it a long time now. This meat is incredible. It's the most, uh, for me, It it is a, a meat that you can do so many ways and with so many flavors. Mine has no gamey flavor to it. You know, everybody that ever eats it, seems to enjoy it you know so that's kind of where i i come from now i raise that the deal of, of, of cooking them out there on some of these pages people just beat you down you know why is that well i'll say one word from mine is it's just ignorance they don't know they haven't done it it's somebody told them this and now it's true but they have not some of it's late. I, I think is laziness. They don't want to process them. They don't want to learn how to do it. There's, there's
0: work involved. I mean, I, there's work. This it's, is my my guess. Like when I talked to you and you said pancetta, I was like, whoop, okay, hold on, I need to have a longer conversation. I'm mm-hmm. infinitely interested in charcuterie and like Italian and French derivatives of like salumi, salamis, pepperoni. And I'm like, pork, wild pork in Texas. And I'm going, man, why, why isn't there like a, te- if we have a wild hog problem, why isn't there a Texas version of jamon? Which is yeah. huge in Spain. Yeah. And yes. then it's like, I don't know, this is where I get confused with you and Jeremy because I'm not a hunter. I don't come from a hunting family. I'm very interested in learning, but I don't have the sort of social connections as of yet to you know, get a gun, get a hunting license, go out. I'm a huge foodie. I, I did stuff for years, and people would just have, like, uh, this is me, beef bourguignon. I'd make beef bourguignon for a group mm-hmm. of people. I'd get some local grass-finished beef, a brisket, cube it up, you know, make the beef bourguignon, and people were like, dude, what in the world? And it's like, oh, well, the stock is homemade. And they're like, yeah. you realize they've never made a beef stock. They yes. don't know how to make a beef stock. And what, it's like, yeah, they're happy to eat it but the amount of labor that goes into producing something like that isn't something that the average person wants to go into. When you put up photos of the food you made and I start looking at mortadella and you go what the hell is mortadella and it's like well it's like fancy bologna. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you want if you want to call it that. Exactly. There was nothing about the food that you showed me that I was like I wanted everything. It was um, amazing and I think using the food, the gustatory pleasures of the table is something that draws people into the conversation. They're actually right. interested in it because, well, who doesn't enjoy a nice piece of ham unless you have reasons you don't you don't eat pork? For me, it was everything about its sustainability and management, and then you were helping solve a problem by putting good food on your table for your friends and family. That seemed like the perfect solution in a sense. I was actually surprised to find out how sort of controversial some of it could be from other cooking groups that I'm in I'm actually surprised at how little time people spend cooking at all that art form has has changed we're not spending as much time gardening farming canning preserving smoking you know things preparation methods that take a long time some of that has fallen by the wayside as we have more and more access to large commercial scale agriculture and food production. The artisanal component of what you were doing, complete geek. I was like, I I wanted to pull you aside and go, I need time and tutelage (laughs) to be able to study how to do this. Because when I think about commercial pork, one of the things that's happened with my diet is I'm mainly at this point eating a carnivore diet. It's mainly meat and fat, particularly beef. My body responds inordinately well to this. I've had chronic pain problems from joint pain that went away within six weeks eating this way. But one of the things I've noticed is I'm I'm more uh, cautious about commercially raised pork, and I'm not sure if it's the pork itself or if it's something in the diet because they're just fed you know corn. But I'm assuming that a, a, a grass finished, if you want to call it, pastured pork which wild hog would be. I don't know if my body would have a different response to that. So it was this collision of of forces in my world where it was like good eating, health, sustainability, learning more about Texas, and this artisanal culture where you were getting into making these things yourself. I would be the first one sitting there with casings helping you make sausage and learning every little detail. <laughs> Because people don't understand, like, when you make sausage, they, they make those jokes about what's it, uh, sausage and laws, so you don't want to get involved in how they're made. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. when you control the grind and you control the spices, you control the texture. You can alter it in various ways. So, for instance, I grew up in Louisiana where pork and uh, chicken and seafood is more common. As soon as I talked to my brother about pork, he's like, ooh, could you make andouille?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you there. anything you can make with domestic, you can make with feral. You know, there's, there's no doubt about it. The thing with feral, though, is it's much cleaner meat. Let's look at some numbers here. Let me give you some numbers. This will pique your interest because of your thought about domestic and how you're affected by it. This is for a three-and-a-half-ounce serving, okay? Wild boar cholesterol in milligrams, 55. Beef, 62. Pork, 71. Okay, and and chicken is 57. I mean, wild boar is lower in cholesterol than all three. Okay, let's talk about protein. Same portion in grams, 26.1 grams of protein for the wild boar, 19.6 for beef, uh, 16.6 for pork, domestic pork, and 20.5 for chicken. Beats them all. It's got more protein to it. Saturated fat in grams 5.2 for the wild boar, 11.2 for beef, 22.5 for domestic pork. And, and of course, the, the chicken beats them. It's at 4.3. But take a wild boar, 5.2 in saturated fats compared to 22.5 in a domestic. That's a big difference, you know, in in the unsaturated fats. It's 2.9 for the wild boar, 4.1 for the beef, and 8.3 for the domestic. Much cleaner meat, much cleaner, much healthier meat. When you
0: take out a hog and you're thinking about processing, when you mm -hmm. go out into a stand, it's a, a sounder? Is that the group of pigs? Yes. Right. So you, you're you're using night vision. You get the sounder in your scope. Do you pick the piglet or do you pick the full grown hog?
1: Depends on what I'm wanting at the time for uh-huh. meat. You know, if I you know, we can't keep every hog we kill. By the way, I don't even do. that. I can't do. You know, we we just can't. But when. And I don't. I, I, I can't tell you last time I sit in the stand. I always spot and stalk, walk around, whatever we spot them and go to them. But <clears throat> if you know your young, your younger, smaller pigs will be more tender, and there's a lot less meat. If I want things like, if I'm going to try to get some ribs, or for sure, pork bellies, getting bellies off feral hogs is, is pretty difficult. If you can get them. In the winter, when they're fattened up off, you know, bigger sows, and that's about the only time you can really get some pork belly out of them because in the summer they run so much off and they're just not, you know, there's not much belly there. And and the ribs don't have a lot of meat on them, you know. They'll be a lot better, uh, the bigger hogs, the smaller hogs, there's almost nothing there. So if you want to cook a whole smaller hog, you know, if that's what you're going to do on a Smoker or whatever, than you know smaller pigs. But you know, I look at it every time as to the size of the hog as to what kind of what I'm going to make with it. You know, Uh, I may not even know that when I take one; I don't know what my mind is. What
0: What are the things most hunters are taking? The loins, and they're taking like the shoulders of the hams.
1: Yeah, and And that's that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, for the most part. Now. There are a lot of people that still, you know, want to hang them and try to take everything they can off of them. Hey, I I get it. I do not gut any of mine. I do the gutless method. Glenn Guest put up a really on his hog zombies uh, YouTube page, real good video on being able to process a hog in 10 minutes. I mean, that got my attention because I can get rid of that hog and be moving on really fast, and I've learned to do do it very well. You don't get a lot of shoulder meat on feral hogs the way you would think of it with, you know, pork butts or something like that, but you still get enough out of there. You make carnitas and things like that, you know. The hams you can do so many things with, and uh, not a lot of people – Use them for making a holiday type ham, curing them, and whatever. But I have; I've made quite a few of them, and, and it's some of the better ham you'll you'll get out there. It's very good made that way. When you're taking
0: a, a hog, you're selecting almost for like cuts, size, age, depending on what your you know desires are. What are the things that you wish hunters were making with wild hog? that they're not currently looking at, maybe because it's labor intense?
1: Well, I think it's just an overall thing of making use of the meat. Uh, It doesn't matter so much what cut or what they would do more, but try try and learn something out of it. You know, I I just came from a different generation. A lot of the, the younger guys don't seem to have it the same as the older guys in the sense of, my dad said, "If you're going to shoot and kill it, you're going to eat, you need to eat it." We we can't do that with pigs, and I don't think of that every time I shoot a, a shoot hogs because we got to keep the numbers down. So sometimes we're just trying to get the numbers down, and and we're just killing hogs. So I think that if if they just try to broaden their horizons a little bit and and not just think of throwing things on smokers and Go get yourself a grinder and make some sausage you know oh, I mean I'm,
0: I'm with you <laughs>
1: you, know, uh, you know because it's really sausage is fairly easy to make, and uh, you'll you'll love it around our house with spaghetti and meatballs or lasagna it's all with I make Italian sausage we, that's what we use in those dishes and I mean. I look back on using beef and I think, God, how bland that was. Yeah. You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't very good. So I just—I don't think of a specific thing. I just think of, I wish more people would learn to, to give it some effort, you know, or try to give it some effort. People have a lot of excuses why they don't. But it, I think it, if you did, you'd learn to appreciate it.
0: I'm... I got to figure out what I got to do. And I know I don't need a hunting license now. Jeremy informed me this to hunt hogs. I got to get a hunter's license and a weapon and take a gun class or whatever I got to do to hang out with you guys and do this. I am my every little geek synapse in my brain and it gets excited because I'm also dealing with food items and products. I cannot go purchase. Right. Right. I would do stuff, I had a home and I had a little organic garden and I taught myself just enough organic gardening from the internet, vermicomposting, and I would grow lettuce. And I'd grow like heirloom variety of vegetables and radishes and some deer tongue leaf lettuce. And when we'd have dinner, I'd say, you know, do you guys want salad? And they're like, yeah. And I'd go out and pick some radishes and some lettuce from the front yard, which was where my garden was. And everybody would just freak out because the texture and the flavor profile of just trash vegetables. I mean, these are radishes. Radishes aren't anything to write home about, right? The combination of like textures and flavors, you couldn't go purchase the salad I just picked out of my front yard. And then when I saw the photos of what you were doing, it just blew my, my top off. Like I couldn't believe this was right under my nose here in Texas and I had no contact with it at all.
1: Right. It well the thing too is a lot of people want to throw a can of this and a can of that in there. What you see there is all made from fresh ingredients. You you can't you lose flavor out of it in a can, you know. And so that's another part of it is people don't wanna take that time and it's an extra expense. It's just not for everybody, you know. I think in the end it's it's something you gotta wanna do. And there's a lack uh it's an amazing a state like this. There ought to be more schools that are teaching what to do. You know, Jesse has does a school down there, but it's limited. I mean, and I went I went to it. It was very good. I enjoyed it. I really didn't go for. He takes you through everything. You hunt, you hang it up, and and, and they and skin it and got it, and they let it hang in a cooler. And then he come back and he got, got they got a huge kitchen that go in down there. He does all the cutting, all the cuts, uh, all the way through it. And I wanted to, to learn a little more about specific cuts and how you cut them, I mean, no matter how much you do. So I got a little out of that. Biggest thing I got out of it is he makes awesome masa, the, the tamales. Awesome.
0: Oh, masa for the tamales. Masa okay. for tamales, yeah.
1: And uh, You
0: killing me, man! <laughs> yeah. You went for well, car- the, the, you went for carnitas, and then you had to put me in Tamale Land. I'm like, I'm yeah. drooling. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, it's everything about all this is fresh. You know, it's not it's it's not been processed anywhere. You don't have all the antibiotics and hormones and steroids and all that kind of stuff in it. You know, it's it just the meat's much fresher, but. You know, he does do a good school. I don't know if he's doing the long school still, but Jesse's a great guy. He's 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 fun to work with, and we need more of that. There has been some talk about doing field-to-table stuff around. Problem is, it's just so time-consuming to, to get through one dish. We can cook for 19 hours straight here. That's doing one dish, you know. And we can do a lot of stuff like that, and and but it takes it's just a lot of time. So people got to be willing to go for multiple days, and you know, to learn to do it all. So that's kind of where that's at, you know, and not not a lot of people. There's a lot of field to table interest and I think you just have to pare it down. You're never going to get to the level the, of what you see.
0: The the farm to table movement is the the geeky restaurants in Austin that I'm most interested in and then you go introduce a new term, field to table. I'm like, "Oh my lord. I So what so okay, can you take wild hog? It has to be inspected to go into a restaurant in Austin before somebody can even purchase it, right?" Mm-hmm. Okay. USDA,
1: yes. Yeah. Hmm. Supposedly.
0: And then probably for a restaurant, supply is an issue because getting a constant supply is like, you know, hunting itself is a different, you know, different beast. There, like,
1: there there, are purveyors uh, of wild hog. Um, there's a couple, at least two, I don't know three in Texas that, that sell. I had one of the better ones, very interesting. They wanted to buy thousands and thousands of pounds of it. And they're all over. I mean, they're not just in Texas, you know, they're everywhere. But yes, he, uh, um, you can get it. But the problem is the way their whole system stacks up as it gets pricey. Before the pandemic in New York, you could get wild boar for $75 a plate, you know, the people bought it. You know, so here we should be able to do things. We we, we there, it's right here, it's right here. We could do it. We could re- get the cost where they were. And and I think when people eat if that food you're looking at, they're coming back.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't think I don't think the the food quality is the issue. I was just wondering yeah. more about like rules, regulations, the construct and legality of giving some of these you know, wild food items, you know, if you want to call it pastured, I guess you could, but giving wild hog to local Austin restaurants and how they could use it. Getting into this, like I'm very interested, there's a, a place in Austin called Salt and Time that I love. They, they are very farm to table. They have local farmers providing them with hogs from different regions and things, but it's, you know, commercially raised for them, I think specifically and then they're making salamis and and things like that. They've got butchery classes and stuff that I've not taken. But then this pushed it to a whole other extreme because I hadn't really thought about wow, there's like wild pork in Texas. Like it's a common, you know, game mm-hmm. animal. The more I look at it, for me it was a little confusing because I go into the I think it's this Texas Hog Hunters is the name of the Facebook group and I was a little confused as a as a newbie because it was like a lot of night vision stuff. And I'm like, why are they? And I'm like, the hogs are nocturnal. And you go, oh, they're hunting them at night. That's why. Like, it's a little confusing as an outsider because again, I don't come from a family of hunters so I don't have context for uh,
1: what's going on. Yeah, I I don't believe that hogs are naturally nocturnal. I believe pressure causes them to be nocturnal. and they, in time, that way. I mean, I've, we've shot them in the middle of the day. The problem here, somewhat, is it's so dang hot. Yeah. Uh, all summer long and what have you, the hogs don't have sweat glands. So, you know, they stay in places that are shaded and got water and they wallow to try, try to stay cool. But they will get out. They have to eat and they will get out. But, uh, they become more nocturnal because of the hunting pressure, I think, than anything else. You know, they stick their head out there. <laughs> it's not a good thing. But anyway, you know, I for me, it's been a, a thing. I, mean, I try to be a push to better ways to, to use the meat rather than just letting it rot,
0: you know? When you, when you take hogs, how much of it is just, you know, ground up in a sausage? And how much of it is being like cured in some way for like later use smoked preserved. In other words, how much is fresh and like frozen for later use? Like do you have any concepts or ideas on that?
1: Well, one of the things, I mean, it, it varies. I mean, I will, I'll bring hogs in sometime, clean them up and we'll be eating some of that right off the bat. By and large, I try to freeze them and, uh, let it be frozen because of trichinosis uh, more than anything. Because trich, you can freeze. I don't know if I talked about this before, but trichinosis, we have the spiralis strain here. You can freeze and kill it. By and large, the main government bodies say minus five degrees for 25 days. And so it will kill that strain up north. They have the and T6, and it won't kill it. So I try to put all mine in and freeze it. Uh, by and large, I'll do. But that's also because I've you know, got so much other going on, and it's just a couple, an easy way to freeze it. You know, and when I'm processing it, When I'm out there, I I cut, I I always take the hams, sometimes the shoulders, the back straps. I put them in individual plastic bags and put them on ice. When I get back, now, when I I cut them off, I skin them out there, skin each one of them, put it in a plastic bag. Then when I get here, I start to cut it up as to how I want to process it. I think about it on my way back and whatever, you know, what do I want to do with this hog? And then that's how it gets processed. I'm low on this sausage or that sausage. Because I make a variety of sausages. and <clears throat> So if I'm, I'm short on that or if I want to make, uh, you know, like we said, carnitas or if I want, you know, any number of things, cure a ham, you know, all of those things come into play as to what, you know, how I'm going to handle that particular hog. But, you know, I, I got a lot of it in the freezer, so <laughs> it moves. It's amazing how fast it moves through here. Sometimes I think, gee, it it, it it doesn't stay here.
0: And when I think about, like, just breakfast sausage, it's a stuff that I don't buy at the store. I don't particularly care for it. Uh, I do get some from local farms here with uh, pastured hogs that's a little bit better that I really like. And I started thinking wild hog and I'm like, man, if I ground up breakfast sausage and had that in my freezer, (laughs) probably eat it. (laughs) Oh man, I'm just drooling just thinking about it. Because again, it's taking everything I know about pork, but I'm assuming that my body would actually uh deal with it a bit better. I don't know why I've had the response to pork that I have recently. Pork and chicken in particular. I think if it's pastured, I have a little bit of an easier time with it is my experience. When I go for just commercially raised pork and chicken, I'm just not very I'm not very taken with it. My body doesn't seem to respond to it like it's extremely nutritious for me. With wild game, I don't know how my body would respond, but I'm assuming... Having grown up in Louisiana, I love seafood. Beef culture in Texas was something I had to transition into, and I find that people who don't grow up on the coast who don't get fresh seafood often have a a distaste for it. They don't really understand what it's like to pull a fish out of a river and cook that fish and have it be some of the best meat you've ever had. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I I get that. I I love fishing too, so I love catch fish and you know have fresh fish. We we obviously have a lot of freshwater here. I've done a lot of offshore fishing in the past and there's a lot of that to like and enjoy too. But it you know, this this whole thing is a journey. That's another thing that we kind of touched on it. It's not something you're gonna learn overnight. There's so much to it that you've got to wanna do it and keep pushing to learn. You know, and, and associate, find people that you can associate with that, that can raise your level, you know, and help you learn more. And that you can, I find a lot of chefs don't really know so much about cooking wild game, particularly feral hogs. You cook it like you cook domestic pork and you're going to end up with some problems, you know, getting the tenderness in brining is a big thing, you know, I mean, I I brine some stuff for three days, you know, or so, and, and it really helps, but uh, tenderizing you know, this and that and the other, you just gotta, there's a lot of different ways to try to get your meat to be more tender, and it's very important with feral hogs, domestic pork, is, you know, it's a lot easier, you know, and, and so you, you got to want to learn it. You got to want to put the time in, and, and it's a journey. And it, for me, it became kind of a passion to, to, to try to keep growing. I spend a lot of time at it. And so I think when you spend a lot of time with something like that, you, you want others to kind of get that same joy out of it that you do. But it's not for everybody, I realize.
0: I'm a com- huge food geek. I don't have a lot of storage space in my apartment. I'm already sitting thinking about, okay, my brother could have a freezer. He got a garage, we could get a deep free. Okay, and my other friend, because I'm I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, they might not spend the time, but I would. And I guarantee you if I just showed up and started giving people meat, they're not gonna refuse it. It's like the foodie thing combined with, again, this, you know, in Louisiana, nutria are uh, a big issue, invasive species. They've tried to get Cajuns to eat them, but it doesn't seem to have taken off for some reason, even though it's just essentially an herbivorous rodent. It's almost like a a beaver or something like that. So it's one of these things where I'm like, you're helping out landowners. If you get in with hunters and farmers who want the hogs off their land, and I could take that and make hams and breakfast sausage and then start giving that to friends. Oh, man. Every, Every synapse in my brain, I was so excited to have that phone call with you. Because it, yeah. I realized it tied in all these things that I was interested in that haven't had any real expression because I live in an apartment in, in Austin.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and yet you, and you I don't know. It sounds like you haven't been here all that long either. You kind of get assimilated to it. 10, 12 years. Yeah. There's, I assure you, there's a ton of hogs down there. If you go up to see Jeremy, holler at me. I'll go up there with you or something, you know, help you. Get something cut kind of up for yourself. And, <laughs> I can't even. You. I can't even
0: imagine the conversations between the the three of us. I'm like yeah. a sponge.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he's a lot of fun uh, to hunt with up there. I've never. I've never been up there, but uh, he's one of the top that I would recommend for anybody anywhere to go hunt with. Uh, so he, he's a good guy. You know, so I'm always open to questions from people if I can help them in any way. Uh, you know, they they want to try to learn about it. I'm always open to that. Uh, I'll try to tell them what I what I've learned and what I know. And maybe one day they'll be doing better than I am at it, and they'll they'll be willing to return the favor. You know?
0: Yeah. One so, of the the things with uh, Steve Ranella, he's come up several times, and I realized mm-hmm. just how deeply he's influenced me. His sense of stewardship over the land, knowing the species and its life cycle and all these things, all of those pieces combined with the gustatory delight of sharing a meal with his friends, there was a deep sense of camaraderie. And then I thought about the fact that, you know, I learned how to garden organically through the internet just by reading forums and, you know, doing research online, watching YouTube videos. And then I look at it and I look at the culture of hunters and how it's passed on in families from father to son. And, you know, the, the sort of kins, kinsmen, the kinship of these people going out and engaging in this certain, you know, lifestyle in the woods, hunting animals is something that I'm very drawn to. I feel like There's not as much of that in the industry that I'm in specifically. So having, having guy time, you know, hunting hogs, doing things like that seemed like a good, I think the reason I'm drawn to it is it seems like a balance to what I've been doing in my business, which is very heavy uh, tech computer oriented. I get to get up, run around, hunt with some friends, have a beer, you know, get up early, have some coffee and, and go at it again in a very different way than I do when I'm seeing clients or teaching classes online.
1: And that's another thing um, I don't think any of us touched on too much is the experience of hunting at night is, you know, I was instantly hooked when I started. It's like, wow, it's so neat to see the woods at night. You know, you can actually, you know, seeing around. It's been a long time ago now, you know, probably over 15 years, but And I, but I never have lost that, that just that awe of being able to look around and see everything at night. I think every person I ever take out there, first time they're out there, they're just blown away with what you can see and what's going on out there. And it's, it it is definitely one of those things that's kind of, you know, do before you die deal. (laughs) You know, get out there. Try it, you know. It's an animal that we need less of. So it's not like you're, you know, taking something, you know, that doesn't need to be here. Because these are invasive and they need, you know, at least to some level.
0: When you're out uh, hunting hogs, let's say at night, are there certain laws or rules? In other words, you can't take deer at night. That's not legal, is that? No. no. Okay. And then are are there other species you can hunt at night like that other than hogs?
1: Well, yeah, and predators. I mean, you you got uh, coyotes, fox. You know, what else am I forgetting right now? Uh, uh, bobcats. If you ever saw a mountain lion, or a lot of claims to mountain lions, but not many shot. So predators like that you can shoot. You know, and you see a lot of them. I mean, you see quite a few coyotes. Lesser on the bobcats, but there's a lot of kinds. Since uh,
0: white-tailed deer are so so commonly hunted in Texas, I'm assuming they're two of the the most frequently hunted game species: white-tailed deer and boar or wild hog. How does deer meat hold up compared to the wild hog?
1: Well, personally, for me, I mean the, the hog is way better. I mean, I'm just, I mean, I'm I'm fine with venison. I have some. I could cook, cook it. But the hog is so versatile and it just, I don't know, it cooks better, the flavor's better. I have a lot of friends that say they just they prefer the hog meat over venison any day. And there's some people are going to argue it. I mean, it's just like any, anything else. Some people like this, some people like that. And, but for me, by far, it's the hog.
0: My it first was... thought is deer sausage with hog fat. <laughs> It's like, if you're, the, the deer meat is lean, I, I'm assuming, because I'm thinking about how, you know, just lard, like, are you using wild hogs and just making lard out of them? No, they don't have much fat. Not enough fat.
1: Okay. Right. Yeah, they're, you know, different times of the year when it gets into the winter, February or something up here in the northern part, we'll see more of them with more fat. And some, some years I get surprised, we'll see some that are cut. You know, an inch to two inch fat layers on them. I mean, it's it's not all that common, at least from where I'm at. But you do see it, and I think what they eat makes a big difference in their fat layers too. Yeah, you know, the nutrition is 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 a huge thing. But your meat is very, with with the hogs is is very low. You don't have much much fat in there, and that's why it makes it harder to to make it tender. Yeah. You don't have the fat breaking down in there.
0: Are you using like commercial lard and adding it to wild hog to be able
1: to make sausage? I don't use it in sausage. I'll use fat back uh, yeah. that I get in a Hispanic grocer or something like that. I can usually keep about 20 pounds around here, but I'll mix that up in, in with it to yeah. uh, make. If you don't put anything into hog sausage, it doesn't fry good. It it it, it can burn easy. on the too, too dry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, too dry. Yeah. yeah. So you need to you need to put something with it. You know, and I, I, I just a regular pork burger is really good yeah. from them. Mm. I mean, yeah, it's just amazing. I <laughs> mean, it. You know, a pork burgers off of these. We did a thing where we cooked some pork burgers. We did a little foodie thing. We did. I went out and I fired up the smoker and smoked some pork burger. We had put some heavy smoke into smoked some pork burgers. Meantime we had cooked some feet. And the juice off of those feet, nobody had ever thought about doing this. And one of the guys reaches over and he dips this pork burger into the juice off those feet. My gosh, man, I never tasted it. It's so good. It was unbelievably good. everybody's like, man, you got to put this on a menu. (laughs) We got really close. We just lost the supply side. Don't really know what happened to those guys. I think they got a little fearful or something. I don't know. Yeah.
0: There was a a meat cookbook I found years ago from Hugh Farrelly Whittingstall, who is a British gentleman somewhere in England. And it was very like farm the table. And he was encouraging people to raise their own animals, maybe maybe hunt a little bit, wild game oriented. I need to go back and, and look at his work again because he's a little bit more along the lines of what we were doing except, you know, British. And it's really making me interested in charcuterie and the items that could be made, the sort of geek foodie stuff that I could get into I may have to uh, hang out with you and Jeremy for some time and then also go to Salt and Time here in Austin and take one of their classes. I'm assuming that wild hogs and the butchery process just really isn't that different than like wild hogs, right? Like commercial pigs and wild hogs. It can't be that different. I mean, as far as like... No,
1: no, it's not. Yeah, it's
0: not. Anatomically similar.
1: Right. You know, and I've done quite a bit of charcuterie around here with them. You have to, you know, it's not like a country ham in Virginia. You know, those hams over there are so big. Yeah. And so the time they dry out, they're still pretty good size, you know, whereas a feral hog ham, even a big one time you cure it and it dries out, it, it becomes it's it's quite a bit smaller. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, you know, it's like eh, I wish I had a country ham. You know, instead of, uh, instead of the smaller feral hog ham, I've I've made a lot of different ones on genomes and stuff like that. You know, there's a lot of different things you can make, <clears throat> but and it ebbs and flows. If you you'll if you've been far enough into doing your garden stuff, you. For a while, you're into doing this, and then you're over here doing this. You know, you find new interests this and that and the other. So, you know, it just uh, it, it, and people come along and they, they say something and it influences you, and you decide I'm going to try that. And it's gone on for many years for me, but I think I'm just now learning. I mean, I feel like I'm in my infancy of learning all this, and and it, it's and it's you wish there was. I'd love to go to somebody that's really advanced their school or something, you know, but it's not out there. So, yeah.
0: Once you, this is such a niche. Like I mentioned, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, that book that, you know, influenced me. I'm not sure what else is out there. I've seen some wild hog cookbooks and things. I'm assuming there's stuff in the market, but you probably have to really dig all of this seems so ultimately, geeky and fringe, it's something I'm supremely interested in, but you just have to dig to be able to find people who are in it and then just from the the hog group, you know I'll have to kind of talk to people and mine information out of there to see who I should be hanging out with and talking with and I suspect also being that Texas is such a big state, Jeremy talked about this that. The hogs in different areas, he feels like, depending on their forage, have a very different flavor.
1: I think it's always true. I mean, you know, it's kind of like you are what you eat type deal. So it's very much, you know, there's just, in our state, so diverse with that. So, you know, the different areas have different food. I mean, He's up there on peanuts. The guy's lucky. I, I really would like to go up there and butcher some of his hogs and get some of that meat, you know, yeah. and. and and work with it and see how much difference I come up with you know but he's in a prime spot for that you know You're in central Texas area you should be able to find some places
0: oh there's got yeah there's got to be there's got to be places nearby I've already talked to another colleague who's a massage therapist who hunts who was saying that her boyfriend would probably take me out I've got to figure out uh, gun training and a few things, so I feel comfortable uh, with weapons and the like, but I'm assuming it'll develop very rapidly. I'll just have to do some research. My brother is very an aficionado of guns, but doesn't really hunt, and was saying that kind of like we needed more connections to be able to do that. So I'm hoping I can kind of bring him into the fold. I think it'd be something uh, good for he and I as brothers to uh, engage in. And I think he's got more room for like freezer space and a smoker since he owns his home. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I'm dying to be able to figure out what I can do to get out in the woods with you guys and sample some of this to see what's going on. And I know that due to my geekery and wanting to play with different food items, I could completely see digging you know, into the literature, you know, trying to talk to people at salt and time and go, so how do you make salami? <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. hard salami sliced salami what what, what
1: pepperoni and like there, what do you got to you know, do there's so many different ways too. you know yeah. salamis got a lot of different ways to be made and i think that you know it's it's a journey and you know you're starting on this journey and you know just start slow and build off of it you know and once you you know i think Sausages are pretty easy to start with.
0: We were talking about the, the journey, sort of learning as you go. You know, you pick up a little piece and add. You were talking about so many different ways to make salamis. It's, again, it's not something I can go to the store and buy. And I have to dig amongst hunters who are also foodies who wanted to produce something. Like when you said pancetta, I lost it. I was like, oh, okay, I need to talk to this guy more. Like, he's he's going the direction i was looking at and right. as somebody who grew up in a hog culture in louisiana i just you know immediately my one my brother came to mind my brother loves andouille and i'm like ooh wee. as soon as if i told my brother listen, we're gonna make we're gonna make andouille at a wild hog he'd be like when
1: <laughs> yeah that, i mean you know and, i mean there's nothing you can't make out stuff. I'm almost nothing, you know, and I've got tons of recipe books and different stuff that I've looked at. I find by and large that a lot of these, the, the, the recipes don't really work as good as they look in those books, you know, you with a pile of books and it's like, yeah. And and you can even read, you get to where you can read the recipe and you say, that's not going to work, you know, and so you wonder how I got there, but somebody needed to write a book. I haven't gone a whole lot into Jesse's. I've got the book as far as his recipes go, but. Um, and
0: that's the gentleman at do here in Austin.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, it's da- Dow Daud, do, does he have his own uh, cookbook? Yes. Um, oh, okay. And it, it's
1: it's Dewey. It sounds funny. It's Spelled Dewey. Okay. But, yeah, they call it Daudewey. It's uh, something from Africa or something. I can't. He told me once. So he has one. It's called the Hog Book. You can Google it, but. Uh, you can't – it's like you can place an order now, but it sells out. Every time he's getting to the load, it sells out. It's a thick book. It goes through butchering and everything. I mean, it is a very well done. I mean, it would be perfect for you uh, yeah. to be able to see, you know, how these are cut and this and that and the other. You know, it's a fairly thick book. Well, that doesn't probably work, but it's fairly thick book you know and and it's got pictures good pictures everywhere so out of all of them i've seen that's probably the best done and it took him a long time to do it so hats off i mean that's you know it's an accomplishment not easy yeah
0: yeah there's so so many questions I, i had a moment where i was thinking about you i was thinking about jeremy getting involved in hunting and all of a sudden all of my AV equipment and cameras turned into some weird, in my head, some weird version of Steve Rinella's show where it was like there's footage of us hanging out drinking a beer and then processing hog <laughs> and skinning and like all this stuff that I totally geek out about with a Meat Eater because it's so many different species and so many different regions that are treated in slightly different ways. There was a gentleman in the carnivore group I'm in, he had some some elk meat, I think. And he was asking, why is the elk meat so red compared to, and I was like, myoglobin. That animal runs around in the woods. It's got an energy transfer, like oxygen to the cells. It produces more myoglobin, but like commercial hogs aren't moving around a lot. That's why the meat is very, very pale, you know, very, very light in color. You know. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. You and know it. Yeah. That, that sort got- of,
0: that geekery, I, to me, supremely interesting. And what I right. know it does when as a cook is it changes texture and flavor. And that's yes, what you were going back to with the hogs about, I was like, do you render lard? And you're like, yeah, they don't they don't produce enough fat typically.
1: Right. Well, in the myoglobin thing, you'll find that the feral hogs are much redder meat than what your domestic is. There's a lot of myoglobin in it, but myoglobin is a lot of your flavor right there. You get a lot of people. They say, "Yeah, oh, what they want to do." And I've been blasted for this, but they put their meat in a uh, ice chest and they let it th- stays in there and let it melt down and leave the uh, leave it open to let it drain. And they put more ice and what have you in there. And they talk about it bleeding out. It is not bleeding out. That's your myoglobin that's running out down there. That's your flavor that's leaving, you know, let alone that it's food handling 101. You don't just have meat sitting on ice. It turns gray, this and that and the other. How many times did you walk into your butcher and say, I want those gray streaks at stakes over there. Now, how many days did you soak those in that ice water? Or did you on it? It's just not done. It's not a food handling thing. I get what they think they're doing. They're thinking they're bleeding it out. Well, there's no blood there. You know, it's it's mild you're seeing. So, in general, right off the bat, th- that meat's good to go. You don't need to do all that.
0: If you if you, you, ta- if you take a wild hog in, in North Texas you put it on ice and drive it down to Austin. Is there a certain amount of time it needs to go before it's frozen or like like food nope. handling issues?
1: No. Nope. Uh, if you put it on ice, you know, and just let that ice, uh, you don't want it sitting in water. That's why I put it in No plastic. water, okay. Yeah, yeah I, keep, I keep my, uh, my meat not from, to where it won't touch the ice. It's It's got plastic between it. um yeah you can drive it back down to austin maybe check your ice halfway make sure you know you you got plenty of ice take it down there and cut it however you want to cut it or do whatever you want to do and then freeze it you know and you're good to go you know on a grinder you can get any kind you know any number of grinders i I prefer i like to buy one so i buy good stuff but you can get a grinder pretty cheap. Yeah. You can start making sausages. I'll right oh, do.
0: Listen, as soon as you start talking about a grinder, I'm thinking I need a band saw because I gotta trim this. <laughs> like, yeah, there's so many stuff I don't know about, but it's totally exciting to me as a foodie. The the options that I would have, the stuff I would come up with to be able to produce, just like you said, tamales. I'm you know I'm a white guy. I'm from Louisiana. I've made tamales <laughs> from scratch you know for my ex-wife's kids who were half mexican and like they've never made tamales at all and it's like it was just i acclimated just like people from louisiana tend to do i i look at food other food cultures and i i everybody in louisiana anybody who's a cook who sees this by the way we all do this we go
1: i'm gonna make it a little bit better
0: <laughs> we're gonna well, we're gonna change it you know
1: and many, Most people or many people will think that well, my grandmother was the best cook ever and she cooked it this way. And so that's the way, the right way. Yeah. No, there's a lot of right ways to do something. There's no totally right way to make a tamale. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to make a tamale. And just because you've got Hispanic heritage doesn't mean that only Hispanics know how to make good tamales. Anything's that way. You know, people put their time in and they learn. And,
0: I I like the traditions, but it's one of those things about charcuterie, you know, France and Italy are the two countries that come to mind. We have charcuterie traditions, you know, migrating over into America, but I'm most interested in what does a Texas salami taste like? Yeah. What is it? What the the quintessential, the culture thing, Texan, like once you start talking wild hog, I'm like tacos, man. there's got to be a food
1: truck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, It makes great tacos, you know. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, you can go through the whole genre of food pretty much, and your your feral hog will fill the bill, you know. It'll do whatever you need it to do. You just have to have the time to learn to make it do that. And and to me, it's been well worth it, you know, to spend that kind of time and and make it be something. So, But it, there is a cost factor in setting up, you know, we talked about a grinder. Well, you're also going to want a you know, a vacuum sealer. If you're going to put it in casings, you need, you know, a way to, you know, uh, however you want to do it. I mean, my grinder will put it in casings, but I prefer the manual and just fill it up and run it out there, you know? So there's different pieces and parts of uh, you know, but you need a vac, good vacuum sealer. Now, in the early going, you're not going to make all that much. You know, you can get one of the cheap ones, a Food Saver or Weston or something like that. Food Saver, their bags don't tend to seal good. I'm not crazy about it. And I'd always have to do double seals with them. Eventually, I got out of there, got a, a commercial model, a Vac Master model. So uh, now I don't have to worry about it. And I can vacuum big and little and i can do multiple bags at once and all that kind of stuff but that's for down the road for somebody that's starting out you know but you'll never get to that point where you think you have everything you know it's like oh man if i just had this or i had that
0: yeah there's a million different ideas things that go along with it i can't even imagine all the complexity and as somebody again grew up in louisiana but I've sampled a lot of other food traditions in my explorations of food. You know, Indian cuisine, for instance, which is is very hog-friendly, but just tons of stuff, like, all all over the world, from Asian and Vietnamese cuisine, Sichuan and China, just on and on. I continue to dig, and it's really interesting to look at other food traditions. But then, because I live in Texas currently, that's the thing that I start looking at is, like, well— You know, what could you make in Texas? Like what, what can you make out of local items and ingredients? You know, andouille isn't the thing that's, I guess, commonly served in you know, Austin restaurants, but it's something that I'm really interested in, uh, digging into and pursuing. Like I'm assuming you you talk about smoking and we smoke everything in Texas, if we can get away with it. I love smoked meats generally. And it grew on me massively living here in Texas. I don't get the sense that you dislike smoked meats. you just think it's kind of a catch-all.
1: Yeah. After a while, when somebody's asking, you know, how to cook, they come on and they ask how to cook feral hog or whatever. Over and over, it's smoke, 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 smoke. And I did that for years. I mean, I smoked it all the time out there. But the thing for me is that you need to broaden that. And so I love smoking. I'm on another little journey now for 40-something years. I used a, a stick burner. I've always loved using a stick burner. I think it's the best way to get smoke. But everybody these days it, it wants an easy bake, and a pellet grill. And so I bought a, a nice pellet grill recently, and I've been kind of on that journey of learning, you know, what's this all about. And that what I have so far where I'm at with is it, it's convenience. They're convenient. But there's no way it puts it puts out the meat that a stick burner does, and that's my opinion. I don't. I, the flavor's just not there that a real stick piece of wood burning in a stick burner does. It just, yeah. it's never going to have that flavor. But boy, it's nice and fast. You can turn it on.
0: I'm a fan of convenience. I'm a fan yeah. of Venus. Uh, as a carnivore, I have unfortunately burned out several sous-vides. Like, I'm, I need to Another sit down and... I use. Yeah, it's like I need to sit down and see if I can b- fix the one that I, <coughs> I wore out. Somebody was laughing with me because they're like, dude, you're trying to cook a whole brisket with the thing. Like, you're trying to heat an Olympic-sized swimming pool with your sous-vide. Like, you're <laughs> making yeah. it run too high.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've I've got... Set a couple of different sous vide setups. I I really like sous vide. I think it's a, it's an awesome way to cook. And I'm at a point where I need to keep broadening that, you know, and doing more with that. But I mean, as far as the, like a steak goes, there's no better way to get your I mean, perfectly cooked steaks and then serum, you know. Yeah,
0: just quality control.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, big restaurants—that's what they do. Big steak really use sous vide. They cut them, cut them full of steaks and a. Particular temperature, you know. If you think about it; you can't put all those steaks out there by cooking them one at a time. You know, they're they're all being cooked at the same time in a sous
0: Yeah. So, um, well, good. But anyway, you got any you got any closing thoughts before we shut it down here?
1: No, I, I guess I don't. Right? I mean, I, I hope somebody can get something out of it. You know, and it, 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 you know, it's you know, just try to get out there and learn a little more about the meat and you'd make more use of it. Now, I think you'll be glad you did. It's, it's a journey. It's a little work. Uh, but you know, I always say quit, never quit learning and whatever it is, never quit learning, always try to learn something. So anyway, I've enjoyed it. I hope, hope something comes out and you know, I think
0: you are an absolute wealth of information and almost like downplay that this is the most quintessentially Texan thing to me that I've run into in eons. I'm so interested to explore this side of Texas and learn more about the sort of hunting and food traditions in the state. I'm just really, really excited that I connected so quickly with a handful of you from the Texas Hog Hunters group there on Facebook. I'm going to have to continue digging and see, you know, what's out there. Because I, I know for you, it might be old hat, something you've been doing for years. For me, just amazing connections in my fields of interest. You're just a wealth of knowledge.
1: Yeah, look, I appreciate that. I mean, you know... I- Appreciate the opportunity to, to visit with you about it. And if you got questions, let me know.
0: Cool. Yeah, we hopefully, can maybe, uh, hopefully
1: we can get together,
0: you know. Yeah. Hopefully uh we'll have another one in the future. Let me go ahead and uh handle the folks who've lined up to do the podcast and we'll see maybe what we want to do a second one. I will definitely keep in contact with you and if you ever want to discuss anything, feel free to contact me. If you give me sure. one second, I'll just shut up. Uh shut up. I'll close down the podcast and then we'll chat for just a second. Listen, guys, uh, thank you so much. You can contact uh, Daryl. His email address is right there below. Thank you again, Daryl, for participating in the podcast. I hope you guys got a lot out of it just like I did. And I'll see you guys again very, very soon on the Robert Gardner Wellness Podcast.